those. And so a lot of times for breakfast, um, we tend to just go with what's easy. Hey, you want Cinnamon Toast Crunch or you want <laughs> Captain Crunch? What do you want? But one morning I actually woke up early. Um, I don't know why. I just did. And I popped up. And so I had this idea like I'm going to cook the kids like a good breakfast. And so I used to, growing up, I used to eat those little orange rolls um, that are just pure heaven in your mouth. Um, and so I got up early and I, you know, turned on the oven and I cooked these orange rolls. So I go wake the kids up and they come down and they sit at the little bar. And, uh, and so I've got these orange rolls from there and they just kind of look at them and they're like, thanks, Dad. You know, and I could tell by the, what was left over on the plate and the same, they're kind of eyeballing the cereal boxes that, um, that it wasn't what they wanted. That's okay, guys. It's all right. It's fine. But I had this, I had this hope that it was going to be this great breakfast that they were going to remember like me and that didn't come to fruition. But we tend to attach ourselves to hope um, in our lives and, and we, we sometimes, like I said, we place it in wrong places and our hope is not fulfilled and it can be really disappointing. Uh, I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there. And um, there's a reason. This is a brilliant hope passage um, that we're going to read. And we're going to read through the whole chapter um, uh, throughout the sermon. I'm not going to read it all to you right now. We'll just kind of read through it. Um, but I want you, But while you're turning to that, to that chapter, I want you to think about this. Um, when life is hard for you, um, when there are situations that are difficult or the way that you have your story in life playing out doesn't end that way, where do you turn for hope? Just kind of ask yourself that internally. You know, where do you run um, for comfort? Where do you run in your time of need? Where do you run and hide? What are those, where are those places? Where is it that you're placing your hope? So, um, leading us to, to 59, the children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon, and they've come back to Jerusalem, and it's a mess. Um, the walls are torn down, uh, there's no leadership, there's no justice, there's violence in the street, there's extreme poverty, um, there's just basically this fundamental widespread social breakdown going on. And so, there's this place where they just are, are what do I do? Where do we go? And so... There's this brilliant discussion of hope um, in this chapter, and it's really amazing, and we'll kind of go through it. Um, but, you know, w because when you get to these bad places, when you get to this place where you're really struggling, uh, that's where you really find out where your hope is. Okay? So, I want to break this down. I'm going to break down the, the whole book, and then we'll go through it. Um, but I want to do this outline for you. Um, in the first section, it begins with a false charge. Okay? Um, and then verses 2 through 8 is a divine accusation. Um, and then, and with that, that's, this is God accusing. And when God accuses, it's important that we listen. Okay? Uh, verses 9 through 15 uh, contain a confession. And then finally, in verses 16 through 20, this is God's answer, which is divine intervention. Okay? Um, next thing, just kind of want to say a couple things about hope. Um, again, I'm trying to kind of paint a picture as we go through the scripture here. Um, the first thing about hope is the Christmas story is itself a story of hope. Okay? As we think about, and you, everyone in here could probably repeat what the Christmas story is, um, but it's hope created, hope lost, and hope restored. Um, the second thing, and this may sound a bit confusing in regards to hope, but the doorway to hope is hopelessness. Um, you don't get to true hope until you get to a place where you recognize all this other hope and things you've placed your hope in uh, has been wrong. And when you get there and you feel lost, that's when you understand where your true hope is. 
The third thing, um, hope to be reliable and trustworthy um, must fix the problem. Okay, if we hope in something and it's not going to fix the problem, why would you hope in it? And the fourth thing, um, hope is not a situation. Uh, hope is not a location. Hope is not an experience. Uh, hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. So, let's begin. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is ear so dull that it cannot hear. See, God, through the prophet, Isaiah is answering the charge that God's people are making against God. Um, and this happens with these people. They're going through a difficult time. It tends to happen with us. When we get through a difficult time or something tragic or something's going on in our life, we tend to put God in the judgment seat. God, where were you? Why did you let this happen? I don't understand this. And so you start to ask God, you know, God, why are your, are your arms so short that you can't reach out to us, that you can't help us? And so these people are feeling this way. And I get it. I felt that way myself. But what's devastating about this and what's dangerous about this is when we begin to question God's wisdom and you start to question his goodness and you start to place him in this judgment seat, then you're, very, you're less likely to put your hope in him because you have doubt. You doubt that he can actually fulfill what he said he can because of the situation that you're in. And we tend to lose hope. Um, but God's saying through this, is, he's saying, you've got this all wrong. Um, what's, what's going on here is not a sign that my hands are too short. I think Velociraptor hands when I hear that. I don't know why. But it's not that his hands are too short to save. It's not that his ears are so dull that he can't hear. Um, in fact, it's just the opposite. As you read throughout the Old Testament and all these people are going through difficult situations, it's actually just the opposite. He is so present with them in those times, but just they have a hard time seeing this. Um, I want to flip over real quick. This is Amos... Um, book of Amos chapter 4 um, and this is a poem and, and it's, it's interesting I won't read all of it but I just want to read this first part it says furthermore I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain one part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up so two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring. Your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And throughout this uh, in chapter 4, that same phrase keeps coming up. It's all these things as yet you have not returned to me. Um, you know, I, I think many times we place God in this place where we, we think that he's, he's causing all these things to happen. And yes, he is allowing these things to happen because he wants us to return. He wants us to let go of that hope that we have in situations. And he's trying to get us to pry our hands loose of that so that we can find our hope in him. And I think sometimes um, those difficulties we go through are actually tools for kind of an uncomfortable grace. Um, see, I think sometimes the grace of God comes in these uncomfortable forms. Um, and I think that's what's going on here. It's not that God is saying, I can't, I'm not with you. It's not that he's saying, I'm not going to see you through this. In fact, he's saying the opposite. I'm near. I'm with you in the midst of this. But where are you placing your hope? Um, so here's this charge. So the next part of this is followed by a divine accusation. And this is a brilliant diagnostic, um, you know, because here are all these people that are complaining, they're upset, and God is saying, you know, I'm going to diagnose the problem. Um, Real quick, I want to show you, this is a little tool that I have. Um, some of you may know what this is. 
This is a little diagnostic tool for cars. And so because I like working on cars sometimes and they tend to have issues, I can plug that into the car and it's got a little computer readout and it diagnoses the issue. Okay? Um, well, I had this lady one time that I would help with her car and anytime she'd call me, I would get ready and pull this thing out because I knew it had to be something with her car. Well, she was complaining, like, she called me up, and she goes, I'm just so sick and tired of this car, it's always one issue after the other, you know, over the past month and a half, I'll go in, and I try to start it up, and it won't start, and then I jiggle it, and all of a sudden it's working, I don't know what jiggle it means, but she's like, <laughs> um, and that doesn't work, but she said, I, you know, I jiggle it, and it's not, it's not starting, so I get my tool, I go over there, and I just hear her, she's just really upset about it, you know, so just complaining. So I get in the car, I get the key, and I try to turn it, and of course it doesn't start. Well, then I look down, and the car's not in park, okay? And so she was complaining about all this, and she said many times during the week this was happening. I'm like, well, are you putting it in park? Well, I didn't know you had to put it in park. So here's this diagnosis that what the problem really was was not the car, um, the problem was her, okay? So if we look at chapter, uh, verse 2, um, God's going to diagnose the problem here. He says, um, but your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that you he does not fear. For your hands have defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously, and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake's breath forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. So you get the point here. Who is God saying the problem is? The people. Absolutely. He's saying that the problem is not me. The problem is you. Um, you know, I like to think that my deepest problems, my deepest issues are all outside of me. <laughs> that there's somebody else. Somebody else caused this situation. Somebody else did this. But the reality is the deepest problems I have stem from within me. And within each of us. Um, you know, and, and we have a hesitancy to say that I'm the problem. If you think about that, especially over, if you think about protests, um, over the last, obviously, several months, there's been a lot of protests out there. And I don't know if you've ever seen a sign where somebody's holding up with an arrow pointing down saying, I'm the problem, right? You don't see that. What you see is protests are this, this way for people to say, that's the problem, you're the problem, he's the problem, she's the problem, whatever. It's point, putting the blame elsewhere. Um, same thing if you think about it, somebody says, well, I have a bad marriage. Well, who's part of the marriage? Well, it's people are in the marriage. Typically, if there's a bad marriage, it's because one or both, both together have made a bad decision. Uh, if you think about a dangerous neighborhood, is there really such thing as a dangerous neighborhood? Because if you break down why the neighborhood's dangerous, it's because there's people there. Um, I don't know if, you know, everybody probably has Christmas traditions. Uh, my, one of my Christmas traditions this next week, I'm going to be watching all the Godfather movies, okay? Um, I, I'm a, I'm a, they're so Christmassy, Christmas movies. Um, I love the Godfather movies, okay? Maybe it's the inner, inner mob inside of me, I don't know. 
It's the journey mob. We'll start that. But um, several years ago, there was a mayor in Philadelphia, a guy named Frank Rizzo. And if you ever want it, you can YouTube videos of this guy. Have you ever heard of him? Um, he was an interesting character, kind of a mob-like guy who was the mayor of Philadelphia. And every week, every Tuesday, he would do these press conferences to kind of talk about what's going on in the city. And everybody was going to watch this thing, not because they really were interested in what he had to say, but they were interested in how he was going to say it. He was the epitome of, like, politically incorrect. Okay? And so if you watch the videos, don't watch them with your kids, okay? Just FYI, watch it on your own. But one, one press conference on a Tuesday, this noble young reporter, well-intentioned, said, um, uh, said, tell us what you're going to do about street, the street crime. And this is what Frank Rose said, the streets of Philadelphia don't commit any crime. It's all by, done by the people. Next question. <laughs> You know, and how true is that? The problem is not the streets. The problem is the people. Um, And so for us, the minute that we understand God's charge here, the minute that we recognize that he's saying it's a brilliant diagnostic of what the issue is, it's us. Uh, We've taken God's beautiful, glorious, and wisely created world, and because of our issues and our things, we've made it um, a mess out of it. And so for us, that means that we can't find hope um, by running to a new location, because if we go into a new location, who's going to be there? We're going to be there. It means we can't run to a new relationship because the problem is still present with us. Um, you can't run away from it. Um, the problem is that there's something dark that lurks inside of each of us, and, uh, and that darkness is dangerous. It kidnaps my thoughts. It kidnaps my purpose sometimes. Um, it kidnaps my thoughts and, and You know, they're not always pure. It distorts my words and it drives my decisions sometimes. Um, So throughout this book, you'll read these three words. Um, The prophet uses three words here. Iniquity, uh, transgression, and sin. Okay? And so iniquity kind of means this oral, moral, sorry, moral uncleanliness. Uh, I like to think I'm pure, but I'm not. You know, this is part of us. Um, that my desires aren't always pure, my purposes aren't always pure, and there's this moral uncleanliness inside of me. Um, the next word is transgression, and this is that just, re- just rebellion. Okay, this is the point where you pull in, you're driving your car, and there's a no parking sign, and you park there anyways because you deserve to park there. That's like, I don't care what that sign says, I'm going to park there. Or it's that moment where you, are yell- you yell at your spouse or somebody, and you know it's not going to accomplish anything. Okay? But you do it because you just don't care. This is what I want to do. Okay? So that's that rebellion. It's something you do it because you cross over the boundary because you wanted to do something else. And the third word is sin. Okay? And this is missing that mark again and again. This is pulling back that arrow and every time missing what you're called to do. Um, So because there's this iniquity inside of me and because there's this transgression and because there's this sin inside of me, we make a mess of this. We do. We make a mess of what's going on, and we can't blame other people. We can't blame our location. We can't blame the situation. Um, the greatest problem, the thing that needs to fix the most, is within us. It's inside of us. Um, and you'll never find true hope until you understand that accusation, that it's us. Um, well, the accusation is followed by a confession. And so let's read chapter verses 9 through 15. It says, Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. 
We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of, I love this next part. All of us growl like bears. And moan sadly like doves. I'm not sure what moaning like a dove is. That the, I don't know if that's a... I don't know. But... We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself prey. This is a, a great description of what it feels like to be completely lost. I love the visual illustration. If you've ever been in that place where everything, like the lights go out and you cannot see a thing, um, and you just are kind of groping at the wall trying to find your way, how do I get out of here? This is, this is that feeling uh, of just being lost. And when you get to that place of feeling lost and hopeless, one of two things either happens. One, you get angry and you start pointing fingers at everybody. Well, who turned the light out? Who did this? You know, and you do that or you get to a place of confessing what the real issue is. Oh, I forgot to pay the power bill. Okay? Whatever that may be. But we have to get this place that, God, I accept that there's a problem and that problem's me, and I'm placing my hope other places, and I have to get in the right place, because the problem has been me. Um, you know, this is, the, this is that moment where it's like, God, I, I've got a problem that I can't solve. As much as I'd like to, as much as I try, um, I can't solve this problem. Um, and that point is where you hit the doorway to real hope. Because we do, we live in a world where we feel like we can fix everything. We feel like we can do something. If there's a problem at the house, we can take care of that. If there's a problem with our relationship, we can take care of that. But a lot of times it's just temporary. When we get to a place where we understand that we're the problem and there's nothing we can do to fix it, that's the doorway to where real hope takes place. Um, if you say, if only, if you ever asked this question or said this, if only I had blank, um, then life would be blank. Have you ever thought that? If only I had this, then life would be this. And if you answer those questions honestly, if you, ever, if you really did, like today, if in your mind you answered that, where are you putting your hope? Is it in this kind of horizontal hope that, that's just kind of what's in front of you and the people around you, your situations? Is that where your hope is? Or is it this vertical hope that's toward Christ? Because um, I think a lot of times... And I think working with people a lot, with what I do, um, there's a lot of times that people put their hope in somebody else. And then when that person lets them down, and they will, then life is crushed. There's no person that can be a fourth member of the Trinity. Okay? Um, I've had so many people, I, I do a lot of, some of y'all know this, but I do a lot of uh, marriage counseling, premarital stuff. And, um, and, and it's interesting, one of the things I hear a lot is, whether it's the man or the woman saying that, I just want a man or I just want a woman that's going to make me happy. Well, you know what? You're hosed. <laughs> because if that's where you're going to find your happiness, if that's where you're focused, 
um, they're not going to be able to produce that in you forever. I mean, that's, those are temporary, happy, temporary happiness, and yet he or she should nourish you, say they should cherish you, they should serve you, and they should love you. But at some point, if you are married, and I, this is always interesting with pre-marriage with couples, like, they're not as great as you think they are. <laughs> you know, they're going to let you down. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, because the biblical view of marriage is it's a flawed person marrying a flawed person in a flawed world. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> but, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, the hope. We have a faithful God um, who loves us and who offers us true hope. Okay? Um, and some of us, in order to get that, we've got to abandon some hopes that we have. We have to abandon some of the hopes that we have in other people and in other situations because you are. You're never going to meet a person um, who's going to give you life. You're never going to have that job that is going to be so life-giving. You know, um, you're not going to own a possession that's going to give you all the happiness you seek. Um, and so when you can get there and understand that, then that's the doorway to understanding what real hope is. So there's brilliance. I love this next passage. Um, this is starting in the second verse, or the half verse of 15. Um, it says, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. I love this part because um, this is where you really start to see the hope of this. God recognizes that all these people have this horizontal hope. He's recognizing that they're trying to put their hope in all these other things. And, and, and they're not going to find it. So he says, instead of I'm going to wipe you out, I'm going to destroy you all, too bad for y'all. Um, this is what he does. He says, and was astonished, and his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Um, whenever you see that, his own arm, that, that's a phrase that talks about the Messiah. It talks about Jesus. Um, and so what God is saying is, um, I see that you guys are without hope. And I see that you are lost. And so I'm going to give you the hope that you need. And that's the Christmas story. You know, we read, we read Luke, we read the Christmas story uh, every year. You know, a lot of times that's what, we, that's what we're hearing. If you read this, this is the Christmas story right here in Isaiah. This is what's going on. He's saying, listen, here is hope. And it is, it is coming to you. Um, it's going to invade the earth. And his name's going to be Jesus. Um, and that promised hope that he's talking about brings with it two things. Justice and grace. Um, so I want to read this next part. He says, He put on the righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. So this next part is talking about the justice of God. That he is coming to bring justice. And as part of this, it's kind of a scary, if you really look into it a little bit more, 